A full moon lit up the English countryside on a cloudless night in September of 1940, allowing scores of Nazi bomber pilots to navigate by sight towards their British target. Britain knew by then that bright evenings brought German bombing raids, and most Londoners had therefore taken shelter by the time the slow, rumbling bombers were within earshot. In daytime raids, cheering Brits would watch from the ground as Royal Air Force pilots dueled enemy fighters and shot down German bombers. But the RAF did not come out at night, even brightly lit ones, leaving the country entirely defenseless against its aerial invaders. At the first screeching sound of air raid sirens, triggered as invading bombers crossed over radar stations along the English coastline, Londoners scrambled for cover. Some made their way to the relative safety of basements, some to homemade shelters, many to London underground stations, deep below the surface. One man, however, would race to his rooftop as soon as the alarm sounded. Typically clad in his fuzzy slippers and an eccentric, brightly colored bathrobe, he would grab a helmet and rush outside to watch the bombs fall. And the bombs fell close, very close. But this was to be expected. After all, the man was standing atop the bomber's primary target, 10 Downing Street. That man was Winston Churchill. At Cross Border Solutions, genius isn't narrowly defined by high IQs or Ivy League degrees. Around here, you have to work a little harder to earn the coveted status. Sorry, Harvard. For us, the term genius is about game-changing ideas, limitless imagination, and most importantly, fearless execution. Welcome to Genius Beats Fear, cross-border solutions thought-provoking podcast, where we discuss real-life disruptors who push the envelope so far, they change the way we live. Do these innovators face obstacles, challenges, critics? Of course. But then, genius always beats fear. Born during the reign of Queen Victoria, Churchill was an aristocrat of many flaws. But in April of 1940, he was undoubtedly the man of the hour. With a triumphant Hitler massing his forces along the Normandy coast, after taking just weeks to overrun Holland, Belgium, and France, and the United States still strictly isolationist, Churchill suddenly appeared to be the final barrier between Western civilization and the wave of ascendant fascism. By sheer force of will and against all odds, he held the line. How did he do it? By standing on the roof of 10 Downing as bombs rained down on London for one. His physical bravery, his refusal to be cowed by a triumphant Hitler, 
His determination to fight to the bitter end was contagious. When his daughter-in-law asked what she should do in the increasingly plausible event German paratroopers were to invade their home, he replied, You, my dear, may use a carving knife. His pugnacious radio speeches buoyed England and filled a desperate Britain with hope that all was not yet lost. His spirit lifted a seemingly beaten country and emboldened it to fight back. In short, his genius beat fear. A special message congratulation to the fighter command. Mr. Churchill says the results they have obtained give us just confidence in the approaching struggle. Preceded by a shower of flares, German bombers rain fire and high explosive bombs in their most savage attack on London. Everyone is anxious to get home before darkness falls, before our nightly visitors arrive. This is the London rush hour. Many of the people at whom you are looking now are members of the greatest civilian army ever to be assembled. Like his determination, Churchill also showed vulnerability, his humanness. While touring the hard-hit east end of London after a particularly devastating night of bombing, he wept openly. Londoners recognized it as a sign of empathy, not despair. Never despair. His advisors suggested he stay away from the east end, fearing a battered populace would vent anger at the government's inability to protect them. Churchill insisted on seeing the damage himself, and was greeted with cheers. One East Ender, upon spotting the Prime Minister, shouted, Good old Winnie! We thought you'd come and see us. We can take it. Give it to him back. When another asked, When will we bomb Berlin? He shouted back, You leave that to me. Give it back, he did. When Hitler's Luftwaffe lost its way one night and accidentally hit London for the first time, Churchill used it as an opportunity to bomb German cities, breaking the taboo against targeting non-defense targets. Hitler, enraged, sent the full force of his bombers against London, wreaking unimaginable destruction. Churchill wasn't cowed. Indeed, he was determined to demonstrate to the world that Britain would, at any cost, bring the fight to Germany. Londoners cheered him for it. They cheered because they knew he was in it with them. Being driven out of town to Chequers, the Prime Minister's country retreat, during a respite in the bombing, air raid sirens unexpectedly sounded. He ordered his driver to turn the car around and return him to 10 Downing. If Londoners were to suffer yet another night of deadly bombing, he would suffer it with them. His residence at 10 Downing continued to be in the eye of the storm with one bomb falling close enough to blow out the kitchen windows. He refused to budge. Not everyone cheered when Churchill rose to the office of Prime Minister in 1940. Many declared him reckless, unreliable, a loose cannon. Most of the doubters appeared to be elites and government ministers. Churchill spent a good part of the 1930s sounding the alarm over the threat posed by an ascendant Hitler in Germany. 
Often, he seemed a lonely voice in the wilderness, far outnumbered by the many fascist apologists and even some supporters. So when he became prime minister, replacing the appeasing Neville Chamberlain, Britons knew what it meant. It meant they were in for a fight. And out of crisis, Britain gets the war prime minister of her desire. Behind Mr. Churchill, the country rallies solidly and resolutely to the task of defeating the most sinister madman that ever aspired to world conquest. That fight seemed a hopeless one. With Europe overrun and the United States firmly neutral, Britain stood alone. Many, including Hitler and his deputies, thought the island nation would capitulate within days. Churchill, however, promised no surrender. Churchill's dogged resistance slowed Hitler's advance long enough to force him into a two-front war, West against Britain and East against Soviet Russia. The British people rallied to his cause and his resolve, along with his endless lobbying, finally brought the United States into the fray, marking the beginning of the end for Nazi fascism. That resolve was born of his genius, an intuitive sense of his country's fighting spirit, his people's ability to endure unimaginable hardship, and their willingness to be led. Even in their darkest hour, he knew his people would follow his pugnacious lead. Growing confidence and growing strength in the air, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it was subjugated and starving. Churchill was a prodigious creator of memorable lines. Never have so many owed so much to so few. Churchill became known for those words, which he spoke in honor of the brave RAF pilots that fought the mighty Luftwaffe to an unlikely draw in the Battle of Britain. We may, however, use those same words to honor the man who uttered them. Standing seemingly alone against the fascist onslaught, Churchill's inspiration rallied the British people to his side, a collective force that miraculously turned the tide against Adolf Hitler. Never have so many owed so much to so few, and perhaps to just one. Hello everyone, I'm Lori Dillon, the host of Genius Beats Fear, and we've got an exciting guest for you. Today we're here with British historian and author of Churchill Walking with Destiny, Andrew Roberts, which became a Sunday Times and New York Times bestseller. Thank you for being here, Andrew, and congratulations on a wonderful biography, one that Henry Kissinger referred to as the definitive biography of his subject. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks very much. You've noted that Admiral Nelson was said to possess the magic art of infusing his own spirit and others. Is this how Churchill kept Britain in the war in 1940? 
It was very much how Churchill kept Britain in the war in 1940. There were so few reasons why Britain could possibly be on the winning side in 1940. And so really all we had was Churchill's spirit, his sense of leadership, and his absolute certainty in ultimate victory. So along those same lines, you've cited General Patton's definition of leadership as convincing someone who thinks he is beaten that he is not beaten. Did Britain think it was beaten in 1940? And did it take Churchill to convince them otherwise? Britain never thought that it was beaten in 1940, although all the logical and rational assumptions should have told the British people that they were beaten. They'd been knocked off the continent. France was about to surrender. They were being attacked from the air. The Royal Navy wasn't able to come south into the English Channel. To all intents and purposes, there was no way that the British people were going to win that war. And yet neither they nor Winston Churchill ever actually thought that they were beaten. And the reason was that Churchill was able to infuse a sense of ultimate victory, even though all of the facts seem to militate very strongly against that. And in your biography of Churchill, you quote Harold Macmillan's description of Churchill as half English aristocrat, half American gambler. Is that what Britain needed at the start of World War II? And without that sort of figure, was the English ruling class otherwise not up to the task? The English ruling class was very much in two minds about Adolf Hitler in 1939 and 1940. Much of it actually thought that he was a good thing because he was an anti-communist. And that was, of course, something that mattered to a lot of them because of their ownership of property and so on. What it also took, however, was the aristocratic sense that Winston Churchill had all his life, he was the grandson of the Duke, that basically thought that Britain was in and of itself superior to anybody that was going to be flung against it, especially Nazis, who it saw in terms of class, recognised them as being lower middle class by and large. And so his sense of being an aristocrat actually worked in Britain's favour enormously in 1940. So do you think there was a value in the American gambler aspect of Churchill as well? I think part of what Harold Macmillan said about being the grandson, essentially, of an American gambler, talking about Leonard Jerome, the Wall Street financier, is also very important. He was seen by a lot of the British aristocrats as being this half-American, which meant that he was willing to take risks, he was willing to ignore what other people thought of him. He was able to sort of kick over the traces in a way that the English aristocracy didn't do. And so you needed both of these sides of him to be successful. I think you note in your book that he was teased at school for being half American, which I thought was funny and interesting. There was a good deal of anti-Americanism around in late Victorian England. They thought that, especially the upper classes, thought that Americans had vast amounts of money, of course, 
that hadn't got the centuries of experience of running an empire, which for them, of course, was the most important thing. And so Winston Churchill did had to put up with a certain amount of bullying at uh, both his prep school and his senior school on the basis that his mother was American. It was something that he was never apologetic about. He never thought that that was in anything other than a strength. However, many of his contemporaries used it against him and did until he became prime minister, in fact, age 65. Andrew, you said that great leaders are able to make soldiers and civilians believe that they are part of a purpose that matters more than even their continued existence on the planet. Was this a key aspect of Churchill's genius? One of the reasons that Britain made it through 1940 was because an essential aspect of Churchill's leadership was to make people believe that their lives were not as important as the continued existence of their nation. He was extraordinary at being able to summon up history and summon up a sense of continued national existence that made people willing to risk their lives day after day, week after week, month after month. It was a truly remarkable phenomenon. And how did he manage that? Was that mostly in his speeches in the Commons or radio addresses? The primary way that Winston Churchill was able to connect with the British people in that era before television was through radio broadcasts. Of course, he did give speeches in the House of Commons that were written down and published in the newspapers. But it was at nine o'clock in the evening when pubs would go quiet and the radio would be switched on, and people up and down the country would listen to the words of the Prime Minister, filling them with a sense of heightened morale and a willingness to carry on fighting the Nazis. It's unfortunate that he didn't have Twitter. I can imagine he would have been amazing on Twitter. Winston Churchill would have been absolutely superb on Twitter. Were you to look at many of his most brilliant quotes, you can fit them into 280 characters or fewer. Many of his best jokes as well, of course, and his rejoinders and his witty aperçu can be fitted into 280 characters or fewer. Yes, he would have been good, really, at any stage in history when it comes to getting his message across. So I'm guessing Churchill is the funniest statesman that you've studied. Along with Benjamin Disraeli, who was also a great wit, Churchill was the funniest of all the statesmen. I think the fact that both of them actually made their living by their pen, Disraeli as a novelist and Winston Churchill as a journalist and historian, meant that they had to sort of live off their wits. They're the only two prime ministers who ever got to the job through their writing. And so they sort of started off with a head start over the many, many prime ministers who, frankly, were extraordinarily serious and heavy and dull and unfunny. So I believe it's his cutting wit that made him a few enemies in the commons as well, though. So it probably may have been a double-edged sword. Churchill's wit was very often used in ridicule of his enemies. And so ultimately, as you can imagine, especially as he crossed the floor of the House of Commons not once but twice, and therefore attacked both the liberal benches 
and the Conservative benches in his time, and also the Labour benches as well, meant that he had enemies from right across the chamber. And this was a major problem for him almost throughout his entire career as a politician. So you've written as well that a well-timed unreasonableness is a common trait amongst great leaders. What was Churchill's well-timed unreasonableness? Churchill's decision in May 1940 to carry on the war, even though Russia was on the same side as Germany, Germany had thrown off the British expeditionary force from the continent. The French were about to collapse. The Americans showed no interest at that stage in in joining the conflict and weren't to join for another 18 months. Really, it was entirely unreasonable for Churchill to refuse to come to terms with Adolf Hitler, to even listen to terms from Adolf Hitler. And that unreasonableness was ultimately the reason that Britain was on the winning side in the Second World War. Of course. And Churchill reportedly slept easy the night he was appointed prime minister. And you quote him saying he was sure he would not fail. Where did that confidence come from, given the dire situation that you've depicted for us just now? Churchill's self-confidence came from a number of areas. First of all, he was a aristocrat from the very top of the apex of the British Victorian social structure. So that gave him an enormous amount of confidence. Secondly, he had held almost all of the great offices of state up until that point. He had been Chancellor of the Exchequer and First Lord of the Admiralty and Home Secretary and so on. And so he, he knew politics. Thirdly, in the Great War, he had held high office as well. He had written about history and politics. He really did feel that he knew what he was talking about by the time he became Prime Minister. And it gave him this this wonderful sense of confidence, as well as something that he had had all his life as well in the age of 16, which was a sense of destiny. That is a perfect segue to my next question. You titled your biography of Churchill, Walking with Destiny. Where did that sense of destiny come from? Yes, well, on the 10th of May 1940, on the day that he became prime minister, which was the same day that Adolf Hitler unleashed Blitzkrieg on the West, invading Luxembourg and Belgium, shortly afterwards also, of course, to invade France, Churchill said of that day that he felt as if he were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. And it was true. All his past life, from his birth in the palace to his time as a war correspondent and a soldier to his time as a minister, all of it had been coming together, and especially his writings, in which he ruminated on all of these things, coming together for this very moment of fighting against Hitler. He believed he had a star that he was following, and so... This was an extraordinarily powerful aspect to Churchill, this sense of of private, driving, personal destiny. And that sense of destiny was never shaken by some of his setbacks, his difficult relationship with his parents, maybe the Dardanelles campaign and World War I? One could have understood perfectly well if Winston Churchill's sense of destiny had been exploded many, many times earlier in his career when he 
net reversals of fortune such as no other British politician had. His father frankly despised him. His mother found no time for him. He nearly had his career destroyed by Dardanelles catastrophe in 1915. Um, nobody had had so many ups and downs. He crossed the floor of the House of Commons not once but twice. And so it would have been perfectly understandable had his own sense of destiny been rocked and shaken. But it wasn't. He was, in 1939, the only person, and that includes his wife, Clementine, the only person who thought that he would one day be prime minister. And so this sense of destiny was an absolutely essential part of understanding who Churchill was. Churchill was famously a prodigious weeper. Was empathy a large part of his ability to connect with the British people? Yes, Winston Churchill spent an awful lot of the Second World War in tears. It's an extraordinary thought now. Were Boris Johnson suddenly to burst into tears in the House of Commons, people would consider it to be very strange. But Churchill cried in the House of Commons on many occasions, and nobody thought it did. They recognised that part of him was a kind of regency figure, an aristocrat throwback to an earlier period, long before the British aristocratic stiff upper lip. And so... You can understand this emotionalism in terms of the incredible empathy that he felt for ordinary people in their struggle. He would be able to feel for people to the extent that he would start crying for them. He would see a line of people actually just trying to buy bird seed for their, their budgerigars and, and their pet birds and burst into tears. Yes. So do you think that played a role in endearing him to people? I believe his popularity ratings were incredibly high with the population generally, if maybe not amongst his peers and government. Yes, lots of the ministers and, and MPs and generals were really taken aback by the fact that Winston Churchill had such extraordinary high popularity ratings in 1940 and 1941. And indeed, they carried on all the way through to the end of the war. He was enjoying levels of popularity in the upper 80s and up to 90%, which has never been seen before by any British prime minister either before or since. And people couldn't understand it, or at least his contemporaries and colleagues couldn't understand it. But frankly, it's not that difficult to understand when one appreciates that the British people knew that he felt for them, that he genuinely had a side so empathetic in a way that some politicians don't have and didn't have, that he was somebody who, who genuinely cared. Did Churchill have a better sense of the popular mood in 1940 than his peers in government? I'm just wondering if he knew that Britons would follow his lead, and if he did, where did that insight come from? Winston Churchill had been brought up very much as a leader, both in his school and at Sandhurst. He'd been taught to lead. He'd led people on battlefields in five campaigns on four continents, and then he got into politics. So leadership was absolutely second nature to him. The question is whether or not people would follow him after the disasters and the defeats in 1940. He assumed that they would, and he led in such a way that he assumed that they would. And as a result of that, they did. It was a symbiotic relationship that he had created with the British people in 1940. 
In the film Darkest Hour, Gary Oldman portrays Churchill looking frail and aged. Yet in his five years as prime minister during the war, he hardly took a day off. How important was his energy and capacity for constant work? Gary Oldman was absolutely right to portray Churchill in the way that he did in 1940. Churchill, of course, famously, he was 65 when he became prime minister. Famously, he walked with a, a stick when he went around the bombed-out areas of London. And yet that stick doesn't show frailty so much as strength, which is extremely unusual when you think about it. He was somebody who would bound upstairs three at a time. All the people around him were exhausted by the energy that he showed. It was something, therefore, that he was able to project a sense of urgency to the rest of the people. He told people at Christmas time and New Year that they weren't allowed to have a moment off. He himself took virtually no holiday at all in the whole of the Second World War. And the drive for victory, the drive to destroy Hitler, was the thing that pressed him on, even though he didn't take up the job until his middle 60s. Churchill was a self-educated historian. How does his understanding of history inform his resolute stance against fascism? At the time of the Queen's coronation in 1953, a young American came up to him as he was walking across Westminster Hall and said, tell me about statesmanship. He was asking for guidance. And Churchill said, study history, study history, for therein lies all the secrets of statecraft. And he himself had studied history all his life, he'd written history books, he'd written biographies, and he had learned about statecraft from history. History was an absolutely essential part of his intellectual makeup. And you can't really understand Winston Churchill unless you appreciate that he was a politician second and historian first. Did he make an effort to pass on any of those lessons of statecraft? Churchill was constantly talking about leadership. He had a series of sort of secrets and techniques of leadership that he would tell people. He would tell people how important it was to be in the key place at the key time, which of course he'd done all his life. He said that it was very important to look at small things as well as big, uh, so concentrate on details. He told people to write down their worries, because if you write down your worries, very often you can put them in order of importance, and some of the smaller ones really don't seem to matter at all once they've been written down. He said that every night you must court-martial yourself, and before you go to sleep, work out what went right and what went wrong that day. He had a whole series of leadership tenses. One of them was to never mistake popularity with leadership. Sometimes there were moments when you have to do things and say things that are unpopular, even in a democracy, that ultimately the people will respect you for having told them the truth rather than just having to suck up to them. So there really was a, a very much a sense that Churchill was not just thinking about leadership and displaying it, of course, in his own political career, but also proselytizing about it. You've written extensively on that subject of leadership in your book, leadership in war profiles, some of history's most prominent leaders. What was unique about Churchill as a leader, or 
what may have set him apart from the other leaders that you profile? I think that Churchill's capacity to learn from history really was something that was remarkable. A lot of other leaders read history. Napoleon very much was another person who steeped himself in the stories of the past. But with Churchill, especially Churchill's capacity to write history, and extremely good history as well, his biography of the Duke of Marlborough is still the finest work of political biography that I've ever read implies that you have somebody who, perhaps because he didn't go to university, was teaching himself all the time, teaching and learning all the time. And that really is something that continues right the way up until he's in his 80s. I think what ultimately endears him enormously to historians and biographers was that he uh, wrote 37 books as well as having been the greatest prime minister of the 20th century, perhaps our greatest prime minister ever. Of course, it does, in a sense, show us what tiny mortals we are compared to this great figure. But nonetheless, we're very proud that the greatest man should have been an historian as well. Right, and rightly so. Your biography of Churchill is informed by a treasure trove of previously unavailable primary sources. What surprised you most in the new material? And to what degree, if any, did it change your understanding of Churchill? I was very fortunate that Her Majesty the Queen allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to use her father's diaries. King George VI met Winston Churchill every Tuesday of the Second World War. They had lunch together. Of course, nobody else could be present because Churchill trusted the king with all of the great secrets of the Second World War, the enigma decrypts, of course, who was going to be hired and fired, which countries were going to be invaded, when and under what circumstances, and so on. And what surprised me most, really, was the sheer level of trust that he put in the king and how much he listened to the king's very wise judgment, even though the king was a much younger man than him. One of the things that came very much as a surprise to me was the willingness to criticize the United States and the Roosevelt administration. He was, of course, very close to Roosevelt, admired him hugely. But with the king, he was able to say things that he would never say in Parliament or to the press or to the public that were actually critical of the way the United States was fighting the war, a classic example being the disposition of the American fleet at Pearl Harbor. And I was not expecting any kind of criticism at all of the Roosevelt administration, but there certainly was some in the king's private diaries. And in this relationship with the king, I'm curious as to what surprised you. If anything about his character, Churchill's character, was there something about him as a person that surprised you, that you learned from your reporting? I think the thing that surprised me most about Winston Churchill's personality really was this capacity to soak up reverses in his life and to, each time, strengthen him rather than break him. I think that most of us, if we were beaten physically in the way that he was at school, if we had parents who either had contempt for us 
or showed no interest in us whatsoever, if we had had these appalling reversals of fortune politically, we would have been knocked back and it would have psychologically affected us for the rest of our lives. With Winston Churchill, he had the most extraordinary capacity to just pick himself up and dust himself down and fight back. And he continued to love his father and indeed his mother for the rest of his life and not blame them in any sense for an upbringing that, that frankly, would be considered almost abusive today. That's so interesting. I wonder if he would be in therapy today and what that would be like for him. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) That's got a good line. I think it's about a quarter of what happened to Winston Churchill when he was young happened to any of us. We would perfectly understandably have a lifetime of therapy to discuss with our shrinks. As it was, what Winston Churchill did was to suck it up and to use it to strengthen his personality and his character and to wind up with a rhinocerine, a rhinocerine skin, really, which was invaluable when the really great and dangerous moments came for Britain and the danger of invasion was daily from the most evil man who ever lived. I think that's a good setup for this last question that I have, which would be, how would Churchill like to be understood by history? I think the way that Winston Churchill would most like to be understood by history is as a patriot. He was a political philosopher. There are books on his political philosophy, and it's a very fine one. There are lots of books about his grand strategy and the way in which he worked out the best way for Britain and to an extent the United States to fight back against the Nazis. But ultimately, I think the thing that he was most proud of was that he was able to articulate a type of Englishness that was decent and upstanding, but also immensely resilient in face of the most terrible threat that history could possibly have thrown at his country. What he said was that he personified the lion's roar. He actually put the words into the British people and spoke for them. I think that's not enough, frankly. I think having worked on five books on Winston Churchill over the last 30 years, he actually embodied much more than just the lion's roar. He he knew where to put the lion's claws, as he put it. He really did set out a fantastically successful plan of operation about how to fight back. But he knew that he wasn't going to be able to do any of that unless he could personify the sense of resistance that the British people had after the fall of Poland, after the fall of most of Europe and after the fall of France. And that really is something that we must always thank him for. And thank goodness he did. And one final question. I just wonder, and I'm not asking this because of the title of the podcast, I'm just kind of curious, did he ever fear failure? Is there any sign he thought, even privately, that failure was a real possibility? In the trenches in 1916, after he'd been forced to resign as First Lord of the Admiralty during the Great War because of the Dardanelles catastrophe, he wrote to his wife Clementine, I should have made nothing if I had not made mistakes. He recognized how important mistakes were in his own career. 
The great thing about Churchill is that he made mistake after mistake, one after the other in his uh, in his career, but he learned from all of them. I don't know whether today somebody who made quite so many blunders and errors would have been allowed to have stayed in politics, but the key thing is that none of the blunders and errors that he made were as important as the things that he got right. He spotted the danger of Germany before the First World War. He spotted the dangers of communism. He spotted the dangers of Nazism. He did so sometimes almost alone. And he had the extraordinary confidence, but also the understanding and knowledge and the actual sort of moral power not to be pushed away from continuing to warn against these dangers. And so you have this person who had the eloquence, he had the foresight, and he had the moral courage to keep saying the things that he was saying. And together you have somebody who was able to walk with destiny. His humanness is such a theme. I think throughout your book and discussion between the way he had a relationship with the people and his ability to make mistakes in public and learn from them. Yes, it's interesting. You know, it's true that he was a genius in his political ability to empathize and so on and to see into the future again and again in the way that he did. But he didn't shove it down anyone's throats. He, he never over-intellectualized. He always made what he was trying to say easy for people to understand. And so, yes, he was a genius, but he was enough of a genius always to be able to be human on a level that everybody could appreciate at the same time. Plus, of course, he had this extraordinary sense of humor, this wonderful wit, that allowed people to relax in his company entirely. He was, in that sense, completely different from his archenemy, Adolf Hitler, who nobody was relaxed in, in his company. And people came away from seeing Churchill, feeling that they themselves were better people. And that really, I think, was a, a key aspect of why he was so important and useful and successful in the Second World War. There's one thing I'd like to say about him and fear. It's sometimes said of people that they were fearless. And that's certainly said of Admiral Nelson, who was genuinely fearless. He didn't have the capacity for it. That's not true of Winston Churchill. He once said that there is nothing so exhilarating as to be shot at without result. But that doesn't mean that he went out of his way to be shot at or he enjoyed being shot at. He didn't. Winston Churchill felt fear, but he also at the same time had the self-training, had the self-control, had the self-confidence to allow his personality to get beyond fear. And that is something that I think is tremendously important. You know, if, if he just felt no fear at all, then he would be a strange person, almost a sociopath. But the fact is that his genius was capable of beating fear. And that's a very, very difficult thing to do. And if he wasn't able to do it, then I think civilization would have been uh, very much worse off in 1940 and 1941. Thank you, Andrew, for a fascinating discussion about an intriguing person. By all means, learn more about Winston Churchill by reading Andrew Roberts' book, Churchill, Walking with Destiny. I'm Lori Dillon, your host of Genius Beats Fear, brought to you by Cross Border Solutions. This podcast was executive produced by Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom. 
Byron Gillum wrote the script. The audio of this podcast was produced by Matthew DeMello with editing and musical contributions by Andrew O'Donnell. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You don't have to be a genius to see why this makes sense. We'll be back next week with more stories about brilliant leaders and innovators whose game-changing contributions are real-life proof that genius always beats fear. Fear.